What we did with the course is we started out talking about the origin of ethnic groups um, and the origins of states, talked about theories of nationalism. So you have theories that prioritize the role of the ethnic group in developing a nation and nationalism. And then you have other theories that prioritize the role of the state and material forces in driving nationalism. And then we looked at some of the factors that are linked to the propensity of a region to secede. Uh, and so that involved factors, some material factors, such as mobilization into associations, such as the density of roads and telecommunications in an area, all of which predicted stronger mobilization. So what we said was <coughs> just enough to have grievances, you also have to have organization and mobilization in order to get secession. But the deeper question also is this one of how important are the material grievances, i.e. Uh, discrimination in government jobs and so on, versus the more ethno-symbolist motivations of we lost our independence, we were conquered, or there was a time when we were great in the past, we need to return to that time, and so on. Those sorts of uh, historic cultural forces. So which is more important, the historic cultural forces or the political economic? That's kind of the real structure that most of these lectures are, take, are taking the form. Is We talked about the Katanga <coughs> secession. Was it about the diamonds and minerals, or was it ultimately about tribal differences, linguistic cultural differences? Uh, that's, a, again, a question that we would ask in a lot of theories. Um, talking about violence, uh, you know, we looked at violence and we looked at theories. What factors can predict violence, such as a failing state, such as having uh, ethnic kin in neighboring states? So if you're Kurdish in Turkey and you have ethnic kin in Iraq, that might be a predictor of greater propensity to succeed, which is perhaps to be involved in ethnic violence. Uh, so this was this is one of the factors that we looked at. Um, what I want to now do is to look at a newer, somewhat newer literature. This is kind of, kind of the latest thing. I wouldn't say the latest thing, but it is kind of one of the new departures in the literature uh, on on ethnic civil war, which starts to say, well, let's instead of looking at broad categories such as people X, um, South Sudanese want to leave. State Y, Sudan, uh, or you know, whatever, people X, Croats uh, want to leave State Y, Yugoslavia. Instead of taking that broad paradigm and just looking at grievances in the round, what, they, what this literature does is it tries to look at who are the people actually doing the shooting, who are the people actually that are involved in the conflicts. So it tries to get down to a lower level than just Group A, Group B, State A. Group, you know, Catalans or, or Basques in Spain. Rather, than, it tries to get below that level to talk about. Okay, well, let's talk about ETA and let's talk about some of the actual movements, the, the, the paramilitary movements or these rebel movement organizations. Let's study that level and try and understand their motivations. Is it the case that the IRA uh, represented? the will of the Irish Catholic population of Northern Ireland, or was it just a bunch of renegades who were loyal to each other and ha had other motivations, or perhaps had no connection to the wider population? That kind of question is important for this literature. Uh, 
I just want to then, so the, the literature on this, what's called micro foundations, which is talking largely about the paramilitary or rebel movement organizations, so the smaller organizational level, uh, emerges out of a literature on civil wars in general, not necessarily ethnic civil wars, so the civil war in Greece, civil war in Ireland, so on, which are not specifically about ethnic grievances. Today in Colombia or in Libya, you wouldn't say that was necessarily an ethnic civil war. It's just it's a, a war within one country, so it's a civil war, but it's not the lines of cleavage are not one ethnic group against another. Uh, so this was sort of where a lot of the literature comes from. Um, it looked at, for example, partisans and resistance movements in uh, Yugoslavia, Greece, and so on during World War II, uh, and so, so, so other kinds of civil war. Uh, now, what's interesting for us, of course, is that since uh, 1945, that kind of non-ethnic civil war is less common. Most civil wars are actually ethnic wars between two-thirds and three-quarters of the wars um, have been ethnic wars. So we want to understand what the civil war literature can tell us about the ethnic wars. Uh, and, and this gets to the themes of theories of nationalism because one of the premises of this literature is that it takes a kind of modernist instrumentalist view of uh, the motivation why people are involved in the fighting. In other words, that their prime motivation is not that they are fired by myths and memories of injustice, myths and memories of homeland, and so on, but that, that really it's other narrower kind of concerns that motivate them. So it's this instrumentalist, it fit, fits into that modernist instrumentalist school of nationalism that we talked about uh, in the class on theory, rather than the ethno-symbolic cultural historical school. Uh, so, two of the most prominent writers in this camp are uh, James Fearon and David Layton, and they advise governments, and they're, so they're very prominent in the literature. Um, their 2003 article, which is, the, I think, the most cited article in the most prestigious political science journal, uh, so that gives you an indication of, of their influence. Um, but their argument is that when we look at civil wars, these are largely taking place including ethnic wars, largely taking place in the countryside, in peripheries of states, rather than in the centralized urban areas of states, and that the fighting tends to be done by, quote, lightly armed men hiding out in rough terrain or hiding amongst a host population from the authorities. Uh, which, so, so they may use, they may be up in the mountains. Um, you know, if we think of the Taliban in Afghanistan, for example, of, groups that are hiding out from the, the central state. But they often consist of small, small numbers of individuals, a subset. It's not the whole Irish Catholic population that's in the IRA, even though that was the mythology that propagated by some Protestant paramilitaries. But actually, it was just a small number, at times counted in the hundreds, uh, that, that are involved in these organizations. So they're saying, well, let's study these individuals and their motivation. Maybe if, if it was not for these individuals, we wouldn't have a war. So maybe we just have to study those individuals. Uh, notice that argument is, say, is, is saying, well, the mass support, mass sentiment is not so important. So even if the population is very strongly nationalist, that's not going to make a big difference. This is sort of the argument. Second major 
aspect of this literature is that the major axis of cleavage in a conflict, in other words, Sudan north v south, let's just say, or Christian versus Muslim, uh, that major ideological conflict uh, may not be what's driving the fighting at the local level. So it may not be what's behind the fighting going on in Helmand province. It may not be this issue of, you know, if you are a believer in the strict, um, sort of the strict theology of the Taliban, pro-anti-Taliban, that may not actually be the issue. So it may actually have to do with other kinds of conflicts that predate this ideological or ethnic conflict. And so it ties in then with this modernist view that um, people are not motivated by nationalist myths and symbols to fight, that that's not what's driving them to fight. Uh, they're actually fighting for more mundane reasons to do with wealth, power, or security, protecting themselves, loyalty to their, to their friends, and so on, that kind of more materialistic argument. Stathis Kalivas, who is uh, based at Yale University, is a um, very important figure in this literature, uh, and has done work with former Civil War fighters, uh, reporters who've been in battle zones, anthropologists who've studied these areas and has tried to come up with a sense of what, what is motivating the fighting in these outlying peripheries where a lot of the Civil Wars take place. And he says, well, actually, if you look at it, the reasons people seem to be fighting have more to do with things like local loyalties, um, loyalty to charismatic individuals, personal flat family, clan, village. So that level of loyalty, which really predates uh, the arrival of these bigger cleavages, such as Taliban against non-Taliban, or Muslim versus Christian, those kinds of bigger narratives uh, one ethnic group versus another, Basque against Spanish, those bigger narratives less important than um, local loyalty. So you basically, you may have uh, a long simmering local dispute between two different clans in a village. One clan decides, well, we're going to jump on board the Taliban bandwagon in order to then get back at our enemies and use use the, the, the money or the authority or whatever that comes from uh, being part of the Taliban and use that to kind of go after our enemies, our local enemies. Uh, Kalivas talks about this distinction between uh, the private view of violence, that violence is really about settling scores and vendettas and these local types of conflicts, and then Carl Schmitt's more political view, which is perhaps more the traditional view that it's these large ideologies that, that actually are more important than those local vendettas and local loyalties. So this, is, this would say that the wider ideological and ethnic cleavages actually do matter and cut through um, local factions and, and reorient the conflict. And this is more the kind of view that's being pushed by the micro-foundation literature. Um, so Kalivas talks about this, what he calls the messy reality on the ground, that on the ground it's not a neat, you know, northern Christian versus southern, uh, or, sorry, southern Christian versus northern Muslim type set up in Sudan, Nigeria, wherever. Uh, that actually um, you have to look at the pre-existing loyalty structures that are there. So 
the, the, what he calls macro cleavage, which is the, the major ethnic cleavage between one ethnic group and another, uh, is not necessarily what's of importance. Um, so, the, so we think of, so if you think of Rwanda or Burundi, the conflict between Hutu and Tutsi, or in former Yugoslavia, Serb and Croat, that would be the macro or master cleavage. Uh, but for, for this school of thought, they would say, well, you have to actually look at, go down to the village level, clan level, and look at those local feuds, which then will be mapped onto this wider cleavage. So people seeking in some way, either local feuds and loyalties, or it has to do with profiteering in some way, uh, and, it, and gaining advantage through smuggling, through crime, and so on. And then they use... Uh, now, I'm going to use an example from North American history, which, was, which has often been used in the literature. So that if you go to the American War of Independence, um, there was a distinction made between the patriots who were in favor of independence. And I lived in it for a year in Boston, uh, in near Boston, and they had an annual parade, and they pictured the patriots here dressed up. And then the bad guys were the redcoats, you know. So, so they, had, they had this... this um, and they were... So the patriots... But it, and then you had, on the other hand, the, those who remained loyal to the British Empire, known as the Loyalists, and this is not coincidentally uh, a, um, a statue to the United Empire Loyalists who founded English-speaking Canada. So this is a, the opposite story that's being told about that war. <coughs> How, what, what is the, you know, the interesting question is what decide, uh, determined who became a Loyalist or a Patriot in the American War of Independence is quite interesting because you had people who sounded the same, looked the same, had the same religion. Uh, it's not obvious what would determine whether you became one or the other. Um, and what, what actually people found is, for example, in the, on the American frontier, the Scotch-Irish uh, tended to be patriots, and the Scots Presbyterians from Scotland tended to go on to the loyalist side. So in other words, what determined whether you were a loyalist or patriot was not whether you bought into the whole package of loyalist ideology or patriot ideology, but more just what was your narrower loyalty? Were you Scottish or Scotch-Irish? Um, and then depending on what you were, you say, okay, I'm going to go for this side or that side. So what that's saying is it's the local level cleavage that, that's more important than these big grand master cleavages of patriot loyalists. Same kind of thing can be seen in other wars. I've listed a few here. Uh, where, for example, in some of the frontiers between the North and the South, like in Tennessee and Arkansas, you had groups of people who supported the Unionists partly in order to get back at their local adversaries, because these were quite lawless parts of the country where you had um, family disputes. You might have heard of the uh, um, Hatfields and McCoys. I don't know if, if you've heard of that. But this was a long-standing family feud that went over centuries, and so they would use these wider conflicts as an excuse to beat up on their adversaries. Or in the Chinese Civil War, a study showed that the majority of those who joined the Communist Party and Mao had a bandit background. Um, so why is, why, that, why is it that a lot of bandits happened to join the Communist side instead of the Nationalist side? Um, so again, there's that link between an economic activity, banditry, and an ideological cleavage, communism. Uh, taking the communist side. And, and, uh, and his argument, Kalivas, is that you can see that in a lot of these other civil wars. 
um, that it's these local loyalties. So they have what really matters to them is their local loyalty or perhaps profiteering. And then they look at the big cleavages in the war, nationalist, communist, whatever, and they say, OK, we'll pick this side or that side. Um, Afghanistan, perhaps to bring it in more to a contemporary uh, picture, the argument here is that you have, for example, loyalties to local warlords, for example, and you've got a, a number of different warlords around Afghanistan. That is the sort of bedrock cleavage, the micro foundation. And then based on that, <coughs> individuals might decide to throw their lot in with the Taliban or the Northern Alliance or whatever, uh, the bigger cleavages. Um, so it's this mapping of the big cleavages onto the micro, which is the level of the warlord. Uh, and so it's not just the case that the, you know, the macro simply reorients the, the local level. It's actually the local locals deciding which side to, to join and which side's going to give them more of an advantage. So playing the, the different sides. And that leads to this possibility that you can have people switching sides from one, say, Taliban to anti-Taliban and back again, uh, depending upon what the, the warlord wants. Uh, so it's the local that is primary and then the... The, the macro is secondary, uh, would be kind of the argument. Uh, and this argument would also, for some, also apply to ethnic wars. And, and here's just an example from the Tajik civil war in Tajikistan in 1992. And uh, the quote is that you had many conflicts on multiple dimensions, such as region, profession, position within the state, and ethnicity. But the ethnicity is not necessarily the one that was primary. So you had other. Uh, if you like more material, materialist, instrumentalist sort of cleavages. So that's again trying to undercut the argument that it's the myths, symbols, and memories and, and cultural differences which are driving the conflict. Their, their argument is that actually the, the drivers are more at a lower level, a micro level. Similarly with Afghanistan and Iraq. And that actually brings us to look a lot at the divisions within groups and not just between groups. So it's important to understand divisions not just between Sunni, Shia, Kurd, but actually what's going on within the Shia between the Sadrists and Skiri and others. So, so, so that kind of internal division comes to matter a lot. Um, and so here's a quote. People were not necessarily enemies because they were in different parties. The argument is they ended up in different, on different sides of this ethnic uh, conflict because um, they already were enemies. So they're, they're already local or enemies for other reasons and they throw their lot in with one side or the other. Um, so then that, this that interplay of the local and the national, the local level conflict may be primary uh, and then it supplies fighters for both sides of a national level conflict. Taliban, anti-Taliban, they recruit from different locales. Um, and so the, na the national level can, you know, the, the national level, if you like, the national level Taliban can be very useful for one local warlord in his fight against another local warlord. So they might use the resources maybe, uh, they might use the ideological resources, the material resources from the master cleavage from the national level to uh, attack their local competitors. Uh, so resources, military assistance, and so on can be quite useful to be identified with one of the major forces in the civil war. 
Um, so you can actually get locals manipulating the national level actors by saying, I'll join you if you give me this, weapons, money, so on, or positions. Uh, assuming a particular label to get assistance, or on the other hand, assuming the opposite label, labeling your local enemy, oh, they're Taliban. You want to beat up on them, you want to destroy them. So that same sort of, and this is just a cartoon, uh, uh, the Doonesbury series, I don't know if you're familiar with, but it's basically all about, I mean, they're saying, uh, this is a reporter in Afghanistan saying, oh, it's amazing that uh, you can just switch sides from one major group to another. And they say, well, we have a long tradition of changing allegiances in response to opportunity. Uh, again, that, the, the argument that it's, it's to do with material opportunity in a way rather than firm belief or some sort of ideological principle. It's much more shifting and fluid than that. And then there's a joke from the reporter, well, we have a man named Aira, very American, this is to do with baseball. Um, but that, you know, there's an individual who jumped from one team to another. So loyalties also are very shifting. <laughs> um, and then he says, oh, my men fought with the Mujahideen, then the Northern Alliance, then the Taliban, now we're back with the Alliance, and, then, and so on. So anyway, that is the, uh, the gist of it, this idea that you can kind of have shifting allegiances and shifting loyalties, because actually people don't, aren't involved in civil war for purely principled reasons. Okay, so um, there's also a kind of literature, if you recall, you may not recall, uh, on, the on the lecture on um, ethnic violence, on separatist violence, we looked at Donald Horowitz's arguments about the fact that when you have groups that are seceding that are in poor areas, poor groups in poor areas, their secessionist movements tend to be very fragmented, so they don't tend to have a lot of group unity. Not everybody is members of the one nationalist uh, association. So in these backward regions, and South Sudan would definitely qualify as that, um, you tend to get a whole bunch of competing splinter movements, uh, a splintering and infighting that goes on within the secessionist movement. So it's not just a case of, again, of group A trying to secede from the state, but, or group A versus group B, but actually you have a whole series of different actors within the secessionist movement. And this is also linked to more violence and longer civil wars. It's harder to make peace when you have many different factions in the secessionist movement. Uh, okay. And then, and Kaliba says, well, part of the reason for this splintering, particularly in the poor areas, is that they aren't modernized. The state hasn't penetrated and integrated these areas very well. So in a poor state, you tend to have a lot of local variation, so the village or clan level is much more important. And when the clan and village level is more important, then, um, then you get more of this infighting. Perhaps an example of this, it's not a great example, but if you look at the Arab Spring and you compare Egypt and Libya, and Libya had that clan structure so that even though you had two sides in the, the pro and anti Qaddafi side, in the anti Qaddafi side you had different clans. Uh, that are involved in different tribes. And so that, that is going to make it harder, perhaps, hopefully not, but might make it harder to actually come to a nice, neat peace deal and reconstruction. Uh, now, the critique of this whole literature on micro-foundations, the whole materialist, instrumentalist literature that says, well, it's really just about either profiteering or local loyalties and 
that everyone's shifting allegiances all the time in response to opportunities. The critique of that literature says, well, actually, no, um, pre you know, long-standing prejudices, myths about the other, uh, memories about your own group do matter quite a bit. And um, this is Stuart Kaufman's <coughs> work, which which bakes yeah Stuart Kaufman. So there's three three Kaufmans in this this narrow literature. Uh, I don't know what that says, but anyway. <laughs> um, uh, so. His argument is that the emotions uh, that are often embedded in these myths that refer to the other as like vermin or cockroach or whatever. So that kind of characterization actually triggers and plugs into people's emotions very directly, bypasses cognitive rational thinking, and really plugs right into people's gut emotions. And in fact, some of the more recent work in evolutionary psychology, it's, it's quite popular right now, that argues that, in fact, a lot of the reasons people act um, is, or many of the reasons for people's behavior is not rational and cognitive, but in some way it is uh, emotional um, and has to do with certain evolutionary instincts and drives. So that's kind of what he's arguing about. It's verging, it's moving in the primordialist direction. But arguing, therefore, that these emotion-laden myths are triggering off particular activities. And therefore, certain myths and certain prejudices are just nastier than others and <laughs> will actually lead to more violence than others. So you have to look at the content of myths. All myths are not alike. Some are more violent than others. Uh, and he looks at the Rwanda case and the Hutu and the Tutsi and their particular myths about the other side and saying, um, in particular, the Hutu had a, a, a real fear of the Tutsi uh, as, be, you know, as, as going to come down and exterminate them. And it sort of built up this real mythology around the Tutsi. And the Tutsi had their myths, uh, myths of superiority to the Hutu, uh, which they also promulgated. Uh, and that this actually matters a lot. To, you know, if you have a, a conflict where the myths about the other side are really virulent and really trying to tap into those very basic evolutionary emotions, then you're going to get more violence. Uh, and, you know, there are cases, I mean, Kaufman brings up the case of South Sudan, which recently became independent. Um, and he asked the question, well, what on earth was the Sudanese state doing in the 1980s and in the 1990s? Why was it, in a way, imposing conditions on South Sudan that simply meant the South would be much more likely to rebel and leave. How could it have been in the interest, rationally, for uh, the elites of Sudan to actually pursue the policies they did? Um, so for example, what happened is that in Sudan you had an imposition of Sharia law on the South, which is mainly non-Muslim. <coughs> so an attempt to kind of push quite a strong Islamist agenda onto the South. That didn't really, doesn't really make sense from a sort of state point of view. If you want to keep your state together, the logical thing to do would be uh, to at least pretend to accommodate them, or at the very least not rub you know, a different religion right in their face, because that's only going to make it more likely that they're going to rebel. Um, and for Kaufman, what he says is, well, this can't be explained from a purely rational point of view, which is the point of view that's more associated with 
the instrumentalists and modernists. Their view is that it's all about opportunities and advantages and rational calculations. Whereas he says, well, really what this was about was northern Sudanese, uh, Namir is printed here, is shown here, who represented, he was not necessarily even particularly keen on these views, but it was almost something that was pushed on him by the North Sudanese, the, the Sudanese uh, Muslim population who had this stereotype of the Southerners as being inferior um, and really wanted to, um, to push this ideology on them. So it was kind of a populist, ideologically driven and motivated narrative of forcing Sharia law on the uh, largely Christian self. So it can't be justified, or it, it can't be explained as a rational action that was designed to get some, you know, either to get hold of the, the resources in the South, how can that have been effective? Um, what it wound up doing was forcing the South with its resources and oil out of Sudan. So that's now resources the government can't get its hands on. So you can't explain that government policy based on the greed of elite politicians or on some kind of material advantages that they sought to gain. So you have to explain it another way. Uh, and so for Kaufman, then, it's this content of myths which really matter. Um, so sometimes you have groups that have a, a siege mentality. That was, to some extent, the Hutu situation. If you look at the Hutu in Rwanda, they had myths about uh, the Tutsi. That, that they claimed that the Tutsi were, had a history of being invaders and that were coming to enslave them and that they had to be exterminated before the Tutsi exterminated them. Um, so so there, there were these very potent myths which had very widespread distribution in the population. Um, so this idea that the contents of myths matter. Uh, so the Hutu had managed to successfully characterize the Tutsi as a threat to their existence and then dehumanize them as cockroaches and refer to them as cockroaches and invaders. And that, that kind of language actually does matter in terms of stoking up passions and getting people to, to be willing to, to commit genocide. Uh, so the argument is that the ethnic divisions are not easily trumped by the kinds of economic and local concerns spelled out by the micro-foundations, people like Kalivas. Uh, so there you have kind of two opposite sides. One, a, a more instrumentalist, materialist type of theory, and the other, the more culturalist, ethno-symbolist theory, the, the, or even primordialist. So the, the micro-foundations then are saying, you know, alliances are tactical, they're shifting, it's about opportunism. Uh, the critique of that is that really the micro-foundations literature draws heavily on non-ethnic civil wars, such as the American War of Independence and the Greek Civil War, Chinese Civil War. These are not really wars that pit one ethnic group against another. It's not as easy to show an instance, it's harder to show an instance of where um, you have a conflict in a town <coughs> between two local groups, and groups decide to change their ethnicity or cross an ethnic boundary. That's much rarer. Uh, or, or invent, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have a group who thought of themselves as Spanish and then decide for tactical reasons, oh, we'll become Basque, and we'll throw a lot in with the Basque separatists. So, you know, the argument is, is harder to apply to uh, an ethnic conflict. I think where, you, where that argument could be applied is to say, well, okay, within the Basque area, if we divide it between people who favor Spanish, the Spanish state, and those who favor an independent Basque country, that would be the cleavage, rather than 
uh, that people would suddenly start saying, well, we're Spanish, not Basque. It might just be, well, the cleavage actually is between those who are loyal to the Spanish state and those who want an independent Basque country. And that that would then be what is determined by a local loyalty rather than by a true belief in, in the ethnic conflict itself. Uh, for the ethno-symbolists, then, um, they tend to focus less on those local groups and more on the nationalist discourse. Uh, and that can be seen as a critique, that just focusing on what the mouthpieces of the, you know, the rebel groups and of the, the state, what they're putting out ideologically, can be misleading. It may, this sort of ideological discourse may not refer to the local clan and family loyalties, which are just, in many ways, less sexy and less kind of um, potent ideologically. So you wouldn't necessarily pick those up just by reading newspapers and looking at uh, what's on the internet or, or what's being promulgated uh, on the radio. Uh, well, but, but what, there, what there is an agreement on is this idea of um, splits within secessionist movements or within ethnic groups. And I just show um, a couple of, of snapshots from Northern Ireland from the Protestant side. The loyalist movements, the par loyalist paramilitaries who were involved in the troubles in Northern Ireland um, have splintered into a number of different groups. And actually, quite recently, just in the, you know, a few years ago, there were a couple of very violent uh, feuds within loyalism. Um, Johnny Adair's uh, was on one side. He was involved um, in the loyalist volunteer force. And they were fighting another group called the Ulster Freedom Fighters, both of which were components within a particular movement. So they were sort of sub-splinters out of um, out of the UVF, which is one of the two major paramilitaries in Northern Ireland, kind of showing you the way these movements can split up and then fight each other. Um, and, but there are also kind of dynamics that flow out of these factional fights, which can lead to intensified civil wars. So uh, this is where I think the, the Micro Foundations literature is useful, regardless of their whether you, you buy into their materialist interpretation. But this idea that Understanding violence requires paying close attention to um, the relationship between the actual armed groups that are doing the killing and the fighting and the groups they claim to, to represent. So the Protestant, the Unionist population of Northern Ireland, which is who this guy is claiming to represent, uh, you know, what is the actual degree to which they uh, approve of what he is doing? And, and, and in truth, the level of approval for what he is doing is, is extremely low. It might be counted in terms of 1 or 2% of the population. Uh, and certainly in terms of voting, that would be very low. So maybe that does mean we have to look more closely at these actual organizations. So how, how is it that a particular movement like the IRA or the Taliban uh, or ETA, um, how is it they can be split up? Well, they can be split up partly on those local lines we talked about, clan, sect, uh, family, village, so on. So you can have different networks within, um, within a rebel movement. Sometimes there are groups that are you know, pro-Iranian, pro-Pakistani, in terms of who is sponsoring them. Uh, Hezbollah will be sponsored by Iran. But you know, in, if you look at the uh, Shias in Iraq, some groups are close to the Iranians. Some Shia groups have want nothing to do with the Iranians. So that's another way in which you can get splits within these movements. Uh, you also have different ideologies. Some, for example, Islamists, 
and some groups which are not, or different kinds of Islamists, uh, different personalities leading different movements. Uh, an example here from the East Timor independence movement. East Timor, another country that recently achieved independence, well, recently in the last, um, in the past decade, had 18 factions. And even within Northern Ireland, if you just look on the Catholic side, I, I will, you know, I can count at least four different factions, the official IRA, provisional IRA, INLA, IPLO, so at least four different factions involved. So you've got these different competing factions, uh, and, and those factions are referred to as rebel movement organizations. The concrete organizations, the people who know each other, uh, who coordinate attacks, um, these are groups that are often under pressure from the state, so the state is trying to crush these movements, and it's very difficult to survive because they are being attacked by the state. So in many cases, and these movements have a short shelf life. They fall apart. They, re, you know, they reform as something else um, because they're under so much pressure from the state. It depends. Uh, there's, you know, for example, there's talk now that if, if FARC in Colombia uh, is destroyed, that then it could splinter into a bunch of other smaller movements that will be harder to control, perhaps be more dangerous. Um, so these co you know, and there are different factors that tend to lead groups to be cohesive. Uh, so it was well known in Northern Ireland that in the provisional IRA there were what were called provy families. So provisional IRA families where you had a tradition that went back from parent to grandparent and so on of, of involvement in the armed wing of the IRA. And so that tradition actually can be passed on. One of the reasons that is useful is it's less likely somebody's going to be an informer if they are related to you by blood and so, or by marriage. So intermarriage, kin ties, family, that helps to ensure that if someone is, is a member of one of these provisional IRA families, they're less likely to be a British government informer, which incidentally was quite common. This is what one of the factors that led to the um, defeat of the IRA campaign was the fact that there was so much British government infiltration, there were so many informers in the IRA. So, so sometimes that these smaller ties can form the basis of these rebel movements uh, rather than simply being, oh, so I believe strongly in the ideology of Irish republicanism, I want to join. Um, but that could be risky. The person could just be faking it. They could be an informer. Uh, a way of looking at the different organizations, here's some examples from Kashmir, where you have two different organizations. One is uh, Jammu Kashmir Liberation Front was by far the most popular rebel movement organization in Kashmir. Um, it, it was very popular, but, but its agenda was separatist. Its agenda was that, well, we want to separate from India and form our own Kashmir. Uh, that was not very popular with the Pakistani government. The Pakistani government wants a group that's going to say, we're going to separate from India and join Pakistan. So they support Instead, groups, a group such as Jamaati Islami, who is, which is a much less popular group within Kashmir, uh, but is got is, is a much more disciplined group, has a more committed group of um, cadres. Whereas the JKLF, large membership, lots of people moving in, moving out, much easier to infiltrate and to break up. And it consisted in itself of twenty factions with lots of infighting. Whereas the Jamaati Islami is much more of group and also has Pakistani support. So actually, if you, look, if you were to look at popular support, 
this group would be much closer to what the people think. But when you look at actually the groups that survived the longest and seem to be the most effective, actually it may be a group that's relatively unpopular with the population of Kaiser Mayer. Um, so that's kind of interesting. The other thing is you can get a lot of these. The violence is often more intense within uh, groups than between them. So the violence can often be more intense within. Uh, these are just some statistics from Northern Ireland uh, looking at uh, who did the killing and who got killed by religious or, or religious ethnic affiliation. So if you look at um, the total number of Catholics killed in the conflict, 1,500 here, 450, almost a third of Catholics killed in Northern Ireland in the Troubles were killed by Catholics, by Republic, Republican paramilitaries, such as the IRA, provisional IRA. Um, so clearly there's a lot of violence against so-called traitors within the community or those who were seen as being insufficiently supportive of the aims of the movement. Likewise, with the Protestants uh, of the 1,300 or so, or 1,200 Protestants, um, about a sixth, you know, 230, significant number of Protestants killed by uh, loyalist Protestant paramilitaries. Again, showing that there's a certain, quite a bit of that uh, factionalism and violence that takes place within groups. Uh, South Sudan, I don't know if you followed this in the news, this, is, this kind of a problem is rearing its head again in South Sudan. The fact that you have, do not have a coordinated, united movement or did not have a united movement for secession. There were so many factional splits in the 90s that the number that were killed within group were greater than the number that were killed by the north um, on the south. So that's that kind of south-on-south -south violence, if you like. <coughs> Southerner-on-southerner is more important than uh, the Sudanese government's violence against the southerners in terms of deaths. Likewise, a uh, case from India. In Punjab, much of the violence in the Sikh struggle uh, was the result of various factions of the separatist movement fighting one another and targeting civilians in the process. So a large amount of the killing in these civil wars is actually caused by these divisions within groups. Now, I'm, uh, what I want to try to do is tie this within group violence into the between group violence. Uh, it can get a bit confusing, but it's a very important factor. Um, one of the aspects which Donald Horowitz pays attention to is what he calls outbidding. So you have typically a hardline fa militant faction and a more moderate faction. Just putting this in sort of ideal terms, think of uh, Sinn Féin IRA as the hardliners, SDLP as the moderates in the Northern Ireland conflict. Um, what outbidding is about is these groups are competing <coughs> with each other to say, we are the best defender of the interests of the Northern Irish Catholics. Not we are the best defenders of the interests of Northern Ireland, but we're the best defenders of the interests of our ethnic group. That's what happens in divided societies. Nobody votes for uh, a politician from the other side. You only vote for your own. So then the competition is within group as to who can be the most hardline. So what Horowitz says is in these divided societies like Northern Ireland, like Sri Lanka, the factions fight amongst each other as to who can be the most militant and radical. Uh, so it tends to drive ethnic groups to some degree away from compromise. So you have these factions competing amongst each other as to who is going to be the most effective in standing up for the group, might be the most effective in terms of um, warfare as well. Uh, 
And again, this raises issues around ethnosymbolism and, and instrumentalism. That is, what is it? Why is it the case uh, that this outbidding is occurring? Is it the case that they're saying, oh, we're going to be the best defenders of your material interests and security? Or is it the case that they're saying, well, we are going to be the best representatives of <coughs> your grievances, uh, your sovereignty claims, and various other ethno-symbolic uh, things? So again, is it, is it cultural and so on, cultural, historical, psychological? Or is it, on the other hand, more material? Uh, about security and wealth and power and so on. So this intra-ethnic factionalism then can actually drive civil war. Why? Well, because the militant factions in each side are constantly upping the ante. Because it's almost like uh, marketing, you know, Tesco, Asda, and Sainsbury's. You know, so they're each trying uh, to come up with a brand that sells and is distinct from other brands in the marketplace. So all, there's almost always going to be, when you get an ex, a, a profusion of brands, somebody saying, well, let's go for the hardcore, militant, uncompromising brand, um, because there's going to be a market for that, some kind of a market. Uh, so you can get these rogue factions. And that's very important when it comes to um, peace negotiations, because if you have a peace negotiation where, let's just say, the first Northern Ireland settlement in 1973 try to only include the moderates uh, on both sides. But on the Catholic side, IRA Sinn Féin excluded from the first peace deal, which fell apart. One of the, the, the arguments here is that, well, uh, the hardline factions have every incentive to spoil the peace deal, to act as spoilers, because A, they get nothing out of the peace deal. They're excluded from it, and B, um, they can say, oh, these people sold out their traders. And they, so they have all these, uh, you know, it gives them a certain market share, if you like. Another incentive to scuttle the peace deal. So in other words, the lesson there is to say, uh, any policymaker who wants to bring peace has to pay attention to these factional dynamics and include the hardliners. So if you look at that Northern Ireland peace deal, it was really only when the hardliners Sinn Féin IRA on the one hand and Ian Paisley's DUP on the other were brought into the deal that it became a much more solid deal. Not to say there aren't still hotheads out there like the dissident Republicans that are also discontented with the deal, but the fact that you got most of the hardliners into the tent made it more likely that the deal would hold. Um, so you have this issue. Another factor in, in terms of intra-ethnic factionalisms is you might get a situation where uh, different foreign powers can play off the different factions against each other uh, as proxies. So uh, we talked about Iran's involvement in Iraq, um, funding particular Shiite factions, or likewise the Russians funding particular factions in Chechnya or particular factions in Abkhazia or what, whatever. So, so that idea of governments help dividing and conquering by, by uh, dividing movements on their factions, along factional lines. So just in terms of the, um, the policy recommendations that flow from this, one of which is to, for policymakers to, to not just say, oh, this is about the Basques against the Spanish, or this is not just about the Hutu and the Tutsi, but actually to say, let's look at the concrete rebel movement organizations and factions within those movements. 
and pay attention to all of those factions, including in particular the hardline extremist militants and whatever who are the ones who are most likely to have an incentive to destroy the deal. So it is very important to engage. If you don't like Hamas, that's fine, but you want to engage them in a peace deal or you won't. If you try and make peace just with Fatah, well, the first thing that's going to happen is Hamas is going to try and spoil that deal. So you want to make sure that you're bringing all of the groups into the agreement. And then there is this issue that areas, as areas become wealthier, more modern, uh, more integrated, greater density of telecommunications and roads and so on, it's less likely that you'll get as much of this splintering. It's more likely that society won't be based on clans and families and local loyalties, but people will become part of a mass society. And in that sense, it's probably easier to reach a peace deal because you're dealing with a more cohesive movement. Um, and so just in conclusion then, if these local micro aspects of ethnic conflicts must be considered, particularly in poor regions where you have a kind of clan or local family structure to society, uh, you have to pay attention to intra-ethnic factional divisions. These are often very common and that the violence within uh, ethnic secessionist movements can often be worse than the violence between uh, different ethnic groups. Um, you also have different ideologies, networks, and power bases with, for each of these factions within a rebel movement. Um, and that these affect the um, likelihood and level of ethnic conflict, in part because different factions, if they're fighting against each other, uh, have an incentive to distinguish themselves, uh, distinguish their brand, in part through being the most <coughs> radical defenders of the interests of the group and so on. This also, by the way, has implications for counterinsurgency, which we're not going to discuss here. The implication being that if a movement really is just a small, self-contained little rebel movement organization, which is unpopular, uh, there may be a better case that such a group can be militarily destroyed without causing uh, another movement to spring up. Whereas if a movement is popular uh, and actually has a widespread support of the population, then the worst thing you could do is go in and try and militarily destroy it because then that would lead to just an expansion in terms of recruitment.